The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning, church. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. If you're reading from the Black Pew Bible in front of you, um, this is, can be found on page 758. Please stand with me when you are ready to read God's Word. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, here we are in the fourth week of Advent, the fourth Sunday of Advent, and so we are turning to the next section in Matthew So for the past couple of weeks, we've just been working through Matthew's birth account about the life of Christ. Um, And as you'll hear me say a couple other times this morning, we are coming to what is admittedly the darker side of Christmas. It's the side of Christmas that we don't often get to. Um, It's the side that we either just skip over or we um, um, maybe happily or conveniently uh, wrap up with just the wise men. Uh, but one of the good rules for reading your Bible is to always ask the question, why did the authors put in the Scriptures what they put in the Scriptures? There's something here that Matthew wants us to see. It's something that is unique to Matthew alone, but it is something that Matthew wants us to see concerning Christ. And I think it is going to be good for us to be able to linger on a very dark episode to see how it prepares us and foreshadows what Christ would ultimately go through at the cross. For these reasons, I'm titling the sermon this morning, A Cruciform Christmas. And the main idea that we're going to see before us out of this text is this, 
that the cross-shaped side of Christmas calls us to repent and believe in the Bethlehem baby. There's an essence, there's an, a measure of faith, a call to an invitation to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that we actually see laid out for us here in the latter half, the back half of Matthew chapter 2. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause, I'm going to pray, I'm going to invite you to pray, we're going to ask for the Holy Spirit to do only what He can do by opening our eyes to see here. There's a, an episode in the Old Testament where Samuel is being called to be um, a prophet, and as he's hearing the Lord, he's counseled to go back to the Lord and say something along these lines, uh, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And I think it's good and right for us to adopt that this morning for those of us who are in Christ to pray to the Lord. Speak, Lord. Speak through your word. Your servant is listening. We are here to hear what you have to say. And so let's go to the Lord and ask him to do these things. Father, we are here to worship you. And we're transitioning now from worshiping you in song to worshiping you through the word preached. And so we're asking that you, Holy Spirit, would work in power through an instrument like myself so that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, the studying that has been done this week would not just land on us as mere words spoken by a man, but they would land on us in such a way, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we would come as servants saying, Lord, we're asking you to speak to us today, to make clear to us from the scriptures today our need for Christ the Savior who was born on Christmas Day. So Lord, would you make it evident to us this morning? There are men and women here who do not know you in a saving way. There are some here questioning the things of Christ. There are some here who do know you in a saving way. Every single one of us, wherever we find ourselves, we find ourselves united by this common denominator. We must see Jesus. So Lord, speak. Help us to see Jesus in our absolute need for him. It's in the name of King Jesus I pray these things. Amen. Well, over the past couple of weeks, we've been approaching the Advent season, the first arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ through some pretty traditional Advent themes. If you grew up in a church setting where there was a very traditional approach, maybe the lighting of the candles and these sorts of things, if you remember the reason uh, and the rhyme behind that approach is because there's traditional themes attached to those particular Sundays leading up to Advent, themes such as hope love and peace. And we've been talking about those over the past couple weeks, seeing how hope, love, and peace are found here in these opening chapters of Matthew's gospel. For instance, in the genealogy that I preached several weeks ago, we discovered the unshakable hope that we have in the promises of God being fulfilled. 
in the birth of Jesus, we then wondered at God's great gift of love as Brady preached to us about the birth of Jesus as recorded in Matthew's gospel. We looked at heaven's present, heaven's gift to us, that Emmanuel, God, was with us with Jesus of Nazareth. Then just last week, when Chance was preaching to us about the wise men account in Matthew's gospel, we saw Matthew, he ushered us to witness the two great kingdoms that are warring against each other, even to this very day. This idea that Satan's dark kingdom manifested, inherited the king, and it's waging war against the good news kingdom of God that was manifested in the baby that was born king of the Jews. And the reality that we saw last week is that this king, this baby who was born king of the Jews, was just not born king of the Jews. We also know him as the prince of peace. And he is the one who makes eternal peace with God actually possible for sinners like myself and sinners like you. And it's right here in that idea of hope, love, and peace that we find the beauty of the Advent season. This season and all of its rush and its invitation to constantly be pushing and running here and there and meetings, parties, gifts, rushing to and from the store, dinners to be made, There's something about the Advent season and these traditional themes that invites us to pause, to slow down, and to embrace the lasting hope that we find in Jesus, the lasting love that we know to be the gift of Jesus, the lasting peace that can only be found in Jesus, the Bethlehem baby at the center of this season. And it's because of this lasting hope, love, and peace that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we turn to the last traditional theme of Advent, this theme, this idea, this biblical truth of faith, the response to the fact that we do have hope, love, and peace in Christ. It elicits something from us. It's designed to pull out of us, not just a Well, that's sort of a nice kind of idea that the Bible gives to us and we let it roll off in one ear, out the other. But there's an invitation to repent and believe in the Bethlehem baby who would go to the cross, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. There's an invitation that lies at the heart of the Christmas season. And it's because of this theme of faith that we're going to see here this morning. This is the reason why I'm calling our sermon this morning a cruciform Christmas. Now, that word cruciform is admittedly an uncommon word. It's a word that you don't, you don't hear used a lot. But the meaning of this word is actually right there in the spelling of the word. If something is cruciform, it is in the form of a cruce. You get the idea of a crucifix. It's shaped like a cross. That's the idea of something that is cruciform. It is formed in the shape of a cross. And in the back half of Matthew 2, my argument is that's exactly what we see. With these events that lie before us, we see a cross-shaped Christmas even here in the early parts of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in a way, the back half of Matthew chapter 2 is, as I've said earlier, it's the forgotten part of Christmas. It's definitely the darker part of Christmas for sure. We discover new parents who are on the run with their child to a foreign land. We read of children being murdered in a jealous power grab by a wicked king. And then we're told of the humble return of these parents with their child into remote obscurity into a region and into a city that was seen as a nobody place filled full of nobodies. But when we zoom out and take in all of these details, we discover that the dark side of Christmas is truly cruciform as the shadow of the cross was already beginning to fall on the Christmas child here as early as Matthew chapter 2. At the cross, what we witness is hostility against Christ, and we also witness the humility of Christ at the cross. And here in the Christmas story, we're going to witness these exact same things, the hostility of Christmas and the humility of Christmas. And so when we roll into chapter 13, the first thing we notice is this. We notice the hostility of Christmas. We're going to see this in verses 13 through 18. So in your copy of scripture, if you open to Matthew chapter 2 and you begin to read in verse 13, notice how Matthew writes. He writes this, now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And this is what the angel said, Joseph, rise, take the child and his mother And flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod, notice this hostility language, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, wrapping up the story of the wise men, this is what we saw last week in verse 12, and then rolling into these verses before us, continuing with the story of Joseph and Mary and the Christ child, what you find is this. There's a very cozy, lovely Christmas scene filled full of Christmas joy. That's all the the wise men talk. All of this is being shattered in a moment by dreams warning that imminent danger is lying at hand for this little child. If you roll down into verse 16, what you read and what we discover in verse 16 is that Herod the king has discovered that he has been tricked by these wise men. And his response to the tricked, being tricked by the wise men is that he is about to turn and vent his fury on all of the male children in Bethlehem who are under the age of two. So in obedience to the angel's command that, Joseph, you're to rise, take the child, take his mother, and flee to Egypt, Joseph obeys, scoops up his family seemingly in the middle of the night, and he rose, took the child and his mother by night, and they take off for Egypt. Now, I think Matthew is highlighting these events for two very specific reasons. The first reason is found right there in verse 15, where Matthew explains why these events are going on in the form of prophecy being fulfilled. So if you look there in verse 15, Matthew is saying these things aren't just sheer happenstance. This isn't randomness taking place in the life of the 
Christ's child. There's something going on here where God is fulfilling his promises spoken through the prophets concerning the one who was to come. And that's what Matthew says there in verse 15. He says specifically, the fact that Jesus is now going into Egypt was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Now these quoted words, as I just said, are from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. This is the prophecy, this is where Matthew's reference is coming from. And if you go back into Hosea chapter 11, what you discover is there's these words in Hosea as Hosea the prophet is talking to the people of God. These are words in chapter 11 that are reflecting on the rescue of God's people from slavery in Egypt. In other words, if you go back and read Hosea chapter 11, he's reminding the people about the book of Exodus. He's reminding them about the deliverance that the people of God experienced who were out down in Egypt found themselves in slavery, in bondage, from which they could not rescue themselves. God shows up and says, out of my mercy, out of my grace, in my kindness, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to depart you out of this slavery. And Hosea is reminding the people of God in chapter 11 about these things. Now, what's interesting to note is that at various times in the Old Testament, God referred to his people in a very unique way. He referred to the nation of Israel as a whole with this phrase, my son. He would refer to the people of God as my son. Israel was looked upon from God as he looked down on him. He says, this is my son. And so when Hosea is saying, out of Egypt, I called my son, he's not necessarily in this particular moment talking about a singular person at this point in time, but he's talking about the nation of Israel, the people of God. This is, this is my son, And I'm going to call them up out of Egypt, says Hosea, as he's reminding his people, God's people, about this truth. So when you begin to stitch all these things together, when we go back, when you go and read the book of Exodus, where you first see this language on the lips of God, talking about his people in Exodus 4, talking about them as my son, what we read is the story of how God's son went down into Egypt found itself in a place where it was in need of deliverance, and then God miraculously, by grace, by mercy, in his kindness, redeemed them and pulled them up out of Egypt. Thus, what we can say is the Exodus account, the book of Exodus. If you just want to sum up all those chapters in a single thought, what you can say is this. The Exodus account is a story of God's power to deliver his people. That's what Exodus is about. What Matthew's doing is he's recognizing that in those events, those are the shadows of something pointing forward to the substance of Christ himself. That there's a sense in which Christ, standing in the New Testament as the light of God's revelation is casting itself on Christ, the shadow that's cast all the way down to Exodus, we're meant to look at those events and realize these events were not just these events for the sake of being just these events. There's something going on here that points forward and finds its fulfillment in the substance of Christ himself. So Matthew is saying, don't miss this, guys. Don't miss this fact that the Exodus story of deliverance ultimately finds its substance in Jesus. Jesus, who is the true what? The true son. 
He is the true son of God who was also brought up out of Egypt, says Matthew. In other words, when you consider Christ, when you consider Christmas, when you look at the Bethlehem baby, what we find is a new deliverance. What we find is the better exodus that will culminate at the cross and make eternal salvation possible for sinners like you and me. Remember what Brady was preaching to us back in his text. Recall that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, God delivers the promise that Jesus will, will, will save his people from their sins. This is the promise of God concerning Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus will save his people from their sins. So just as God delivered his people in the Old Testament, so now, Matthew says, look at Jesus because here we see God delivering his people in the New Testament. But instead of a physical deliverance from an earthly Pharaoh, it would be deliverance from Satan. It's going to be deliverance from sin. It's going to be deliverance from death. So in Jesus going down to Egypt and then coming up out of Egypt, Egypt, we see this cruciform Christmas already beginning to take shape because the fact that the Christ child went to Egypt and came out is saying that he's going to do something, he's going to deliver, he is bringing the better exodus that you and I need, and that's going to ultimately culminate at the cross. The thing that we celebrate on Easter Sunday. So there is something going on here in the fulfillment of this prophecy. Matthew says it gives us a hint that Christmas is cruciform. It is cross-shaped. But the other thing, I think, comes down to this. Even more so than the Hosea prophecy being filled, being a cruciform, this cross-shaped Christmas becomes even more clear when you see what Matthew wrote in verse 16. It's the verse that just sort of makes us confused. We wonder what's going on. Matthew records that Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. So imagine the picture in your mind's eye. Joseph, Mary, Jesus, angel speaks, command is given, they obey, scoop up in the middle of the night, they roll south. What Matthew tells us is that just as these things were taking place, Herod's execution squad was getting ready, preparing themselves to make a journey from further north. And in very short order, these soldiers under the command of a wicked king swoop into this tiny little town of Bethlehem and lay waste to beloved sons. Sisters, older brothers are being robbed of other little baby brothers. Grandmas and grandpas are being deprived of grandsons as their lives are just viciously torn away from them. You see, this is the dark side of Christmas. I don't know about you, but I've never received a Christmas card with slain children on the front of it. 
We're oblivious to it. We just skip right over it. I mean, it's in the scriptures. This is Christmas. You rarely hear preachers preach during the Advent season. Hey, come join us on Christmas morning. We're going to be preaching about how Herod killed a bunch of little baby boys. You don't hear about that. There's a reason why the details to this are sickening. They're gross. They're vicious. They're numbing. I'm positive none of us right now are able to grasp the concept of living your life like normal and someone swooping in your house and just saying, that child is mine and murdering that child in front of you. We can't grasp that. And you never will until it happens to you. But Matthew here is saying it happened to some. It happened to some. Because these things are sickening to us, they churn our guts, our temptation is just to blow right past these verses, to skip right past them, because we're honestly just not quite sure what to do with them. We don't see how they fit in with Christmas. That's the reason why most of us just blow right past these. How is this related to good news of great joy? Shepherds and angels... Glory to God in the highest, Herod murdering children. We, it's a dissonance there. We have trouble reconciling it. But my argument to you this morning is that as we read these verses, as you read these verses in the future, if we make the decision to skip right past these verses, we are doing so to our detriment because here again in verse 16, we see the shadow of the cross falling at the foot of Christmas. Listen, what are Herod the king's actions but outright hostility? I mean, this is just hostility in the highest. And in the grand scheme of things, Herod the king's hostility, it is, yes, a hostility that is his. He is making decisions. There ain't going to be no king of the Jews born in Bethlehem. I am the king of the Jews, thank you very much. And I will make a decision to dispatch my execution squad to make sure that ain't no king going to come and dethrone me. These are decisions that Herod is making. This is true. But in the grand scheme of things, his hostility transcends the intentions of a mere earthly king, exposing yet again the extent to which Satan's dark kingdom rages against God's good news kingdom. If you go into Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul reminds us that right now, here and now, this morning in December of 2022, there is a cosmic war that is raging in the heavens for the souls of men and women. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, there have been attempts by many Herod-like rulers to wipe out the chosen one of God in an attempt to make sure that what Christ would accomplish at the cross would not come to pass. You see, this is the hostility of Christmas. That's what we're seeing right now here in verse 16. Herod's murder of these little boys tells us how vicious Satan's opposition to Jesus is. Satan is so opposed to Christ accomplishing what he came to do on the cross that he's willing to dispatch someone to go and murder little boys. 
This was the opening salvo of a war that would be waged against our Lord for the rest of his life. Herod himself was but a mere lieutenant in the history-long strategy of Satan to prevent Jesus accomplishing what he came into the world to do. What did Jesus come in the world to do? To save his people from their sins. Satan will do anything to make sure that does not come to pass. You see, Satan knows that Jesus has come so that he, Satan, might not deceive the nations any longer. Hell knows that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So if God's Savior can be slaughtered before he ever gets to the cross, then so be it, says Satan's strategy, just so long as God's salvation plan is put to an end. But praise be to God that according to our Savior's promise, Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, with his first advent, with Jesus' first arrival as the baby in the Bethlehem manger, Jesus entered into enemy-occupied territory. Jesus faced down our mortal enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And Jesus bore the hostility of the cross only to rise victorious from the grave. Satan thought the hostility foreshadowed in Christmas would be Christ's great undoing, but in God's redemptive reversal, the death of Christ actually bring forth eternal life and it sealed Satan's demise. And that's the beauty of Christmas. Amen? The hostility of Christmas is cruciform. The shadow of the cross is already casting itself at the feet of the Bethlehem manger. And when you see the kind of hostility of Satan's dark kingdom waging war against Bethlehem babies... What you're meant to see is this is gross, this is vicious, this is satanic, truly demonic, truly born from the depths of the domain of darkness, hell itself. Why? Because Satan will employ whatever strategy he possibly can in his attempt to prevent that particular Christmas child from going to a particular torture device known as the cross because he knows it will be his demise. And so he dispatches his dupe, Herod the king, to go and do what he did. So in these verses, we see the hostility of Christmas that points us to the cross of Christ. But as we continue, we also see this, the humility of Christmas. The humility of Christmas. Just look at how Matthew writes as he wraps up the end of chapter 2. He says this, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life were dead. So again, he hears the command, Joseph obeys. He rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. 
Now, as you read these waning verses here in Matthew chapter 2, it seems as though Matthew is just wrapping things up with just this sort of mundane, humdrum retelling of the facts. Well, as an author, I, I said that he went to Egypt, and we know he didn't stay in Egypt, so like, what are the kind of details I just need to get to get Jesus out of Egypt, back to where he's supposed to be, where everyone expects him to be, kind of thing. That's sort of the vibe that you get with the retelling of these facts in these latter verses of Matthew 2. But there's a key to understanding what Matthew is doing here. Yes, they are facts we need to know, but he's also trying to give us another insight into the cross-shaped reality of Christmas. The key to understanding the importance of what he's saying is actually found there in verses 22 and 23. And when you look in your Bible and you read verses 22 and 23, what you see is that, G, that Matthew is highlighting a truth, a characteristic, a reality that defines Jesus. He's showing us the humility of Christ there in verses 22 and 23. A humility that defines Jesus, marks him out. A humility that would not only follow him all his earthly life, but a humility, the Apostle Paul tells us, that would ultimately be put on display at the cross where he tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus humbled himself. There's the humility language. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now the clue that humility would mark the life of Jesus is found in where he lived and what he would be called. That's what's going on in verses 22 and 23. Matthew tells us that Jesus lived in Nazareth of Galilee. This is where he lived. And by living in Nazareth of Galilee, this was fulfilling what was spoken by the prophets that this is what he would then be called, a Nazarene. Now, if your Bible is like my Bible, and then you look down there at verse 23, where it says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene, you might be a bit perplexed because you will have no reference describing you on where to go into the Old Testament. Usually that's the way it works. New Testament writer says that this fulfills this prophecy you have some little letter, and it'll say, go read this book, read this chapter, read this verse. In the Old Testament, you'll see this specific prophecy and how Christ fulfills it. But if your Bible is like my Bible, and I was doing checking and other references, what you will notice is that your Bible has no specific reference number for this prophecy. In fact, if you search the Old Testament from beginning to end, you will not find the words, and he shall be called a Nazarene. You will not find it in your Old Testament. So what's going on? Is this a slip of the pen on Matthew's part? He was just getting in the habit of like, and he fulfilled this, and he fulfilled this. He's like, whoop, oh, oh man, I've already sent it out. Ah, what do we do? You know, well, you win some and you lose some. What's he doing here? No, the answer to why Matthew says the fact that Jesus will be called a Nazarene, you can't go and find any direct reference to that. The answer, the way we make sense of this, has everything to do with your and my unfortunate ability to look down on someone who comes from a certain place, who comes from the wrong side of the tracks. Just like the hometown you grew up in, my guess is that there are some places in your hometown that just have a bad reputation attached to it. 
And if you come from that part of town or if you come from that certain city in your county, the people who grew up in that place were just simply tainted by that reputation. So my apologies, where is Chance Newingham at right here? Chance Newingham, Calhoun County man right here, right? Okay. So I grew up in Greene County. The center of Greene County is Carrollton, Illinois. We looked down upon people from Calhoun County. Maybe there's still a measure of that today. I don't know. So looking down upon. We called them apple knockers. Those apple knockers over there. Why? Because uh, it was just a derogatory term. For whatever reason in Calhoun County, because of like the, the hills and the valleys there, there's like a lot of orchards, apple orchards and stuff that are grown there. And so it's like you looked over at Calhoun County, west of Greene County, and if you're from Campsville, if you're from Hardin, if you're from Nebo, if you're any of all these backwater, redneck, camouflage-wearing kind of places, it was big trucks, people low on the IQ scale, like that's the, per- that's the perception. They're apple knockers, those, those Calhounians, you know that? You know this. You grew up in a town that has the exact same kind of thing that went, went on to it. Our city, city has that kind of reality to it. Ooh, you're from that place? It's sort of that ooh, gross, ick kind of factor. And no matter if you're like a Rhodes Scholar, it doesn't matter. You came from that place. You're tainted by that reputation. If you grasp that concept, you grasp exactly what's going on with the life of Jesus right now. In Jesus' day, Galilee was considered a backwater redneck place. Nazareth was deemed a nobody place filled full of nobodies. We catch a flavor of this attitude when you go into the Gospel of John, and do you remember how Nathaniel reacted to hearing the news that Jesus came from Nazareth? What did Nathaniel say? He puts out this question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Do you remember this? It's like going, Calhoun? Can anything good come out of Calhoun? There's this look down your noseness about the fact that Nazareth of Galilee is a place where nothing good ever happens and nothing good will ever come out of it. This was the reputation attached to being a Nazarene. In other words, to be called a Nazarene was to be despised and it was to be rejected. And it's in this sense that Jesus fulfills what was spoken by the prophets. Matthew is looking at the life of Christ. Matthew knows that in the current culture of the day he is living, that if you are from Nazareth, if you come from the region of Galilee, you are a despised, looked down upon, scorned, mocked, rejected man or woman because nothing good could come from this region. And he says, while it might be true that there is no place in the Old Testament where it says specifically that God's Christ would be called a Nazarene, it is true in the Old Testament the prophets repeatedly said God's Christ would be despised and he would be rejected. Probably most famously, in the verses we read earlier in our liturgy, in Isaiah 53, verse 3, where the prophet Isaiah says of the coming Savior, he was despised, and he was rejected by men. He would be a man of sorrows, he would be acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Friends, this is the humility of Christmas. This is the humility of Christmas. Jesus is the epitome of what it means to be a Nazarene. 
He is the despised and rejected one. He is the true Nazarene who was not only despised and rejected by men, but Isaiah tells us that Jesus the Nazarene was ultimately going to be pierced for our transgressions and he was going to be crushed for our iniquities. You see, the Christmas story, listen, the Christmas story was heading to the cross from the very beginning of the birth of Christ. And that's why we must not avoid the cruciform Christmas that Matthew lays out before us here at the end of chapter 2. Listen, Jesus was king. He was the king born in Bethlehem who would become the savior crucified at Calvary. Thus, Advent presents you and Advent presents me with a clear call to faith, a clear call to repent and believe to either bow down and worship this king that we see here before us in Matthew chapter 2, recognizing his authoritative claim on every square inch of my life, on every square inch of your life, or we're just going to simply shrug our shoulder at nativity niceties, we're going to go home and drink some eggnog over the next week, and then we're just going to continue to live our life as we see fit. These are the options that the cruciform Christmas is laying before us right now. The cross-shaped Christmas at the center of this Advent season, it leaves no middle ground. Jesus is either the real reigning king of your life or Jesus is a fiction as fantastical as Santa Claus himself. He's either or. You can't have both and there's no middle ground. And the invitation of the hope and the love and the peace we see in the Christ who fulfills all these things perfectly is the invitation from Matthew to come to say, man, when you look at the cruciform Christmas of Matthew 2, recognize the shadow of the cross was already there. You're meant to take your eyes off of the cruciform Christmas and go and look at the substance of a pierced, crushed, despised, rejected Nazarene who is either truly God and could truly save sinners or he's just a Santa Clausian kind of figure that we should wash our hands of and walk away. These are the choices. These are the choices of a cruciform Christmas. And my plea is that after having gazed upon this cruciform Christmas, and having looked at the story that Matthew lays out for us over the past couple weeks, is that with saving faith, we would all come to echo the words of the hymn. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. Cruciform. Cruciform. And what did he do? He suffered and died alone. How marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love for me that's the imitation of christmas gifts good parties good tree stockings 
good, good, good. But it all orbits the nucleus of a Christ who came to live and die so that sin-dead sinners might live and know eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for making very clear from the beginning what it is you are calling us to. You are calling us to yourself. You are calling us to repent. You are calling us to believe. You are calling us to respond with faith. Not just faith in faith, but faith in a solid object. The object being a person. The person being Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Nazarene. Lord, would you awaken us to these realities? Would you cause our hearts to sink? Not just songs here in a few minutes, but to like truly sing with joy. Joy unspeakable as we go out into this coming week. Would we seize opportunities to make known that I know this Savior. I've been saved by him. And I would love to invite you to know and respond to the same. Lord Jesus, help us to live in such a way where we make much of you. Your name is made famous and sinners are seen to be saved. It's in Christ Jesus, Lord, I pray. Amen.